Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 224. My name is Terry Frost and for this one we are going to be talking about two very different films. Not necessarily the most famous films in the world, they're not particularly well known, but they are really interesting. The first one is from 1942 and it's a movie called Tales of Manhattan starring Charles Boyer, Rita Hayworth, Ginger Rogers, Henry Fonda, Charles Lawton, tons of other people. Uh, it's a portmanteau film with a, a common thread through it and it's really interesting for a number of social and historical reasons in some ways. The other movie I'm going to talk about is a celebration of the fact that Australia has just authorised and, and legalised same-sex marriage and it's a movie from 1970 based on a joe orton play it's entertaining mr sloan starring Beryl reed harry andrews and peter McEnery. uh kind of transgressive slightly unusual absurdist comedy but it's a lot of fun so sit back i'll get the contact deets out of the way and i'll get the show started Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by mp3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so hi, how's everybody going? Hope you're surviving the festive season okay. I know a number of you are enthusiastic about certain movies that are coming out before um, Newtonmas, and good on you for that. I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit later, but uh, the first thing I've got to do is get the bad news out of the way, and it's not bad news as far as me creating is concerned directly, but Patreon, the people who I do the um, micropayments subscription option, for the podcast have changed the way they're doing things. The words changing our business model are always something that I'd never like to hear from a service that I'm using or am a part of, but Patreon have changed things. So if you have a one or a $2 per month subscription with me as a content provider via the Patreon platform, they charge an extra 2.9% of the pledge plus a a flat fee of 35 cents. It's a fat fee as well. So basically, if you're doing a dollar a month, which a lot of people are, and thank you very much for that, I appreciate the support more than I can express, then what you'd be getting charged is a dollar thirty-eight. If you're doing a two-dollar one, then it goes up commensurately, two point five percent plus a flat fee of thirty-five cents. Doesn't affect people at the top end of things, but I know a lot of creators, friends of mine, some of whom also support this podcast through Patreon, have a lot of issues with it. I'm a bit pissed off with it myself because some people will jump ship and it's inevitable that that happens. And I totally understand and respect it if my Patreon supporters do that. I hope all of them don't, but if some of them do, I, I totally understand it. So what I'm going to do is this. I can't change what Patreon are going to do. There are um, a whole bunch of people who are getting together and doing online petitions about this. I don't know how effective that's going to be. I suspect it may not be, but maybe that's a pessimistic viewpoint. 
I don't know. So here's what I'm going to need to do to respect and support the people who respect and support me. I'm going to be putting some content up first on the Patreon page. Link, so the people who subscribe via Patreon get it before other people do. It's not going to be everything. It's not going to be the, the Paleo Cinema normal episodes and the Martian Drive-In normal episodes, but I'm going to be doing some extra stuff which they will get about a week before anybody else. I'm trying to give value added for the fact that Patreon's hitting them up for more money here. So the first thing I'm going to do is if I get 10 more Patreon subscribers before the 25th of December, here's the promise that I make. The Patreon subscribers will get this um, two weeks before anybody else. If I get the Patreon subscribers to support me and show their love and 10 more people come on board, even if it's only for $1.35 a month, US, then I will view and review in an honest, unbiased and factual way the new Star Wars film, Star Wars The Last Jedi. I'm not planning to see it otherwise, but what I thought I'd do is I'd show how much I appreciate Patreon supporters by going to see a movie franchise that I've said a lot of negative things about in the past. I'll be seeing their latest effort. I'll be reviewing it as objectively as I possibly can. It's not going to be a hatchet job. It's not going to be a cynical and sardonic approach to it, though some people like it when I am cynical and sardonic. But I'm going to do it straight up, straight down the line. Did this work as a film? Did it work as fan service? What were the positives and the negatives? But I'll do it in a way that's not just shit stirring. So that's one thing I'm going to do. The other thing I'm going to do, which the Patreon supporters will get, is I'm working on a PDF fanzine about movies, uh, Paleo Cinema fanzine. So I'm already working on the content for that. And as I have copious spare time, as we all know now, I've got the time to kind of do some writing about movies and putting it in the fanzine. I may well release it at some stage wider, but at this stage it's going to be a Patreon supporter exclusive, just to give people something extra if they're willing to dig into their pocket change and throw it my way. So I'm going to be doing that. That should be out sometime in early January. I never wanted to go with a two-tiered thing where the Patreon supporters got more than just the credits at the end of the podcast but I really want to pay them back because they're paying me in a sense and um, other people will eventually get everything that they get but they will get it sooner and that extra thing of the Star Wars The Last Jedi review they will get two weeks before anybody else so I'm sorry if people were hanging for that but if you're willing to stick your money your hand in your pocket I will A, see the movie, and by the way, if I get 10 supporters, that will pay for the ticket in the first month, um, and I will review it honestly and fairly. So there's something, on, it'll be on Martian Drive-In podcast, not on Paleo Cinema, because thematically it works better with Martian Drive-In. So I'm sorry that I'm going to these lengths. Uh, I've got to be flexible and I've got to adapt to circumstance, and, and that's what I'm going to be doing with it. But anyway, that's what's happening and again, thank you very much to the Patreon supporters and to the people who just listen and don't have the means to do the Patreon stuff. I really do appreciate every, each and every person listening to me right now. So what I'm going to do is um, tell you about what I've been doing basically now. So we're getting past the grim part, which may not be so grim, and get on with the show. So um, what have I been doing? I haven't been doing a hell of a lot really. Visited some friends 
down around the Mornington Peninsula the other week and uh, we've been kind of taking it nice and easy. Avoiding shopping centres is a big thing I've been doing because we're getting into that end of year holiday chaos that is Christmas shopping. And I've got to the stage where I can't stand it. I, I don't like the crowds. There are so many people that they even when they're walking in supermarkets and shopping centres, they're bad drivers, if you know what I mean. They'll stop dead really suddenly and talk to their friends. They'll walk really slowly when there's no need for them to walk slowly. They'll get in everybody's way. Six of them will walk side by side like a chorus line through the shopping centre so nobody walking faster can get around them. All of that kind of shit I want to avoid as much as possible. Um, I can really see the appeal of online shopping in those sort of circumstances. It pisses me off. I don't have the same problems people have in the Northern Hemisphere where they've got to deal with all of that shit, plus snow and sleet and rain and totally shitty weather, but it still pisses me off. So I'm kind of avoiding as much of that as possible because it sucks. Uh, by the way, for those of you who haven't heard on uh, Martian Driving, I do have a new microphone. The gift that Sally gave me, uh, we exchanged money to buy gifts for ourselves with because we're that kind of people, is a new Rode USB studio mic, which means the sound quality, hopefully, for this episode and for future episodes, is better. Even though my voice itself has problems, I wanted the recording to be a lot better than some of the ones have been in the past. And by using this beautiful microphone that's sitting near my face right now, with the little pop shield on it and all the little dials on the side of it. Uh, really, it's a lot of fun. I'm really, I've got about eight or ten microphones of various kinds around here. And as long-time listeners know, I've used them for to varying levels of success with a podcast. But um, this one I like. It really is cool. It sits below my line of sight, which is kind of nice, but not on the table. I've got it on a um, microphone arm so that if I'm looking at reference material on the screens, it's not obscuring my view of the reference material the way some of the other microphones I used in the past have. So I love that. Um, I'm a real tech wonk when it comes to microphones. If I had the means, I would probably have 150 different microphones around this place. But um, finances and Sally keep me a little bit under control when it comes to that. So what have I been watching? I saw the first episode of a new TV series called Happy, which is based on a Grant Morrison comic book. It's got the weirdest concept ever, but it really works, and it really does have that Grant Morrison touch about it. Uh, it's about a hitman, a former cop-turned-hitman, played by Christopher Maloney, who's out there killing people and doing all sorts of hitman-y kind of things, very much kind of like Chev Chelios in the Crank movies. But he um, has a heart attack and he gets shot and he's in the ambulance. He wakes up to see a tiny flying, blue flying horse, unicorn, who talks to him and says that he has to rescue a young girl. Uh, the unicorn thing has got a voice by Pat Oswalt and is the imaginary friend of the young girl, a little blue pony with a wings and a unicorn horn. And... It tells this guy, you've got to rescue this little girl. She's been kidnapped by a nasty man who dresses up like Santa Claus. And he, he's got to get his shit together and rescue her. It works. For some reason, the series works. In the first episode, you're on board with it. Um, it it's got some nice twists and turns. 
and it combines ultraviolence with cuteness in a really weird way. There's a twist at the end of the first episode that I didn't pick, but that really makes the whole concept make sense. So I'm looking forward to future episodes of that. That's kind of cool. And yeah, it's got blood, guts, and a cute little flying pony. So um, I recommend Happy. So so far, so good. Uh, let's see, what else have I been watching? I did see Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky, which has Adam Driver in it, and also Daniel Craig and a bunch of other people. Yeah, I kind of like it. It's kind of like a working-class redneck version of Ocean's Eleven, and it works for me. It really is a lot of fun. The dialogue's sharp, stylish. It's also got Channing Tatum in it, and he's good in that. It really does. It's a working-class Ocean's Eleven in a sense set around uh, a robbery at a speedway event and it works it really does pop uh Soderbergh when he's playful is a lot of fun and the ensemble works well together in this one I am going to pick it up on disc when I get the chance because I'm a bit of a Soderbergh fan for most of his stuff and it's something that I'll probably do want to get a copy of and I should be able to pick up fairly cheaply at a sale so that one's recommended as well. I did pick up really, really, really cheaply a copy of Bloodsucking Freaks, the trauma movie um, Joel Reed did in the mid-1970s. Transgressive um, horror. It's politically incorrect. It's nasty. It's stupid and dumb and funny at the same time. I saw this first when it came out on VHS because it was incredibly popular here in Australia at video shops so uh i got a the copy of it's pretty good the transcription is good they did sharpen up the digital transfer of it pretty well and i haven't listened to the to the commentary track yet it's by eli roth before he was famous so i may or may not get around to that um let's see what else have i watched i did watch a movie that i said i was going to do for this podcast but i'm not going to now i'm saving it for the next paleo cinema podcast and it is the 1955 Howard Hawks movie, Land of the Pharaohs, with Jack Hawkins and Joan Collins in it. Uh, big budget kind of Egypt movie done by Americans, so there's a little bit of kind of cultural appropriation there for a culture that's been dead for 4,000 years. But I kind of like it. It's also got a script partly written by William Faulkner, which is kind of a kick. And I really like um, some of the twists in it and the... Uh, climax of it I really like a lot that's a lot of fun so I watched that I picked up a copy of it uh, at play which is the place to go to at the top end of Melbourne CBD if you want to get really cool and slightly hard to find uh, DVDs and Blu-rays they've got an enormous criterion collection there prices are a little more than you want to pay at times but the fact that I can actually find a copy of stuff there really makes it attractive and it's in cinemascope so i've got the cinemascope print of it so i'm kind of happy with that but i'll talk more about that in the next paleo cinema podcast the only other thing i've watched and i picked this up again at a sale was the adaptation of stephen king's dark tower with idris elba in it my short review is don't bother good action sequences but wasting an actor of idris elba's quality with a piece of shit like this and the way they skewed the story and the way they told the story really is a waste uh, it's got Matthew McConaughey in there um, and he's just kind of playing a, a 
kind of James Bond villain kind of character and evil fuck and uh, charismatic as hell. But, you know, it doesn't work. It really is a disappointment. I haven't read the Stephen King um, books upon which it's based, but you don't need to, to know that this one really doesn't work. It's um, the t- tonally it doesn't work. Uh, sto- in the storytelling sense, it doesn't work. It doesn't set things up well enough. And, yeah, nah, is pretty much the review you could give this one. I did finish the um, second season. Uh, I've watched both seasons now of Winona Earp, the uh, Canadian TV series, which is uh, about a descendant of Wyatt Earp who fights demons. Some people have said it's a bit like Buffy the Vampire Slayer with a gun, and I can see why you'd say that. Uh, it's an inclusive thing. It's got a nice cast in it. Uh, it's inclusive regarding sexuality and things like that. But... Um, yeah, I, I kind of liked it, and it, it's not the thing I'd normally watch, but a few friends, including Alex Pierce, who um, I spoke with on the last podcast, the last Paleo Cinema podcast when we did disaster movies, kind of recommended it to me, her and uh, Lisa, and and also um, Tansy, so I, I thought, yeah, give it a go, and I enjoyed it. I binge-watched both seasons of it. Third season's coming up uh, in 2018, and I'll probably watch that as well. Uh, apart from that, I haven't watched a lot, just kind of general stuff that was on kind of thing. Uh, the other big news, which is very cool, and a lot of friends and fans of the podcast were gleeful about, and I was gleeful about myself, was Australia legalised same-sex marriage in law this week. And it was good. It was one of those times when it, it, there are many, so many times when I kind of feel ashamed of my country and what my government's doing on my behalf. And I'm ashamed with the way they did this, but ultimately it got through in spite of a lot of conservative forces railing against it and saying things like, what about bakers who don't want to bake gay birth wedding cakes and all the usual kind of extraneous side issues that come up that aren't really related to the fact is of can a man marry a man and can a woman marry a woman if they both agree to it? They brought in a whole bunch of other issues. Uh, Tony Abbott, our ex-Prime Minister, who was one of the big no campaigners and who actually pushed for the survey that went out, the plebiscite survey that went out, um, to so Australians could vote on something we already knew they agreed to, didn't even stay in the House to vote no. He walked out and abstained by walking out of Parliament rather than having the guts to either follow the 75% of his electorate who voted in favour of same-sex marriage or to vote with what he, what I've got to assume is his conscience and voted no. He did neither of those things. He copped out and the guy is less than one would want a parliamentarian to be. Let's just put it that way. I'm going to be nice. I'm trying not to call him a cunt, but he's a cunt. Um, Anyway, uh, on with the show. So the first movie I'm going to talk about I picked up when we were in Tasmania because uh, we found a second-hand DVD shop when we were looking for a cake shop, as you do. And so we were just outside of um, Hobart CBD and the shop was shut. So I came back the next day, of course, and picked up for $5 a DVD copy of a movie called Tales of Manhattan, which... I'm going to play, uh, I'll see if I can find a trailer for it, and I'll play that now. I see you're not superstitious, Mr. Owen. Not in the least. That's very fortunate. Why? Well, because Bataldi... 
What's the matter? Oh, nothing, nothing. Well, if you want to know, this suit has been cursed. Cursed? Yes. You remember Bataldi, our cutter? Yes, what about him? Well, I had to get rid of him on account of the suit. How come? I had an argument with him about these lapels. Oh, they're perfect. Uh, aren't they? When Bataldi left, he was red in the face with rage. And he asserted that this suit would bring misfortune to anybody who ever wore it. He cursed it. Well, it's too bad. Of course, Mr. Allman, this is the best suit that I have ever made. And I know it'll bring you good luck. Yes, sir, this is a lucky suit, Mr. Allman. And I guarantee your happiness in it. Okay, so I couldn't find a trailer. It's not a forty-two. They didn't really do trailers, as we know them now. But the whole movie, by the way, is on YouTube. It's a fairly good quality. It's not fantastic quality, but it's a re- watchable quality there. And I grabbed a little bit from the start. Now, this movie is a portmanteau film. It was directed by Julian De Vivier, who, amongst other movies, um, made a movie I'd spoke about on a previous podcast, Pepe Lamoco with Jean Gabon. He went to America during World War II and made a few films, and Tales of Manhattan was one of them. It had a number of different writers, but as that clip I just played shows, the basic concept is there's a bespoke suit with a tailcoat that is made for a theatre actor called Paul Orman, played by Charles Boyer. The suit is cursed by the man who cut the suit because he had a disagreement about the lapels, as you might think. And this is the story of the history of this tailcoat. It's based on a Mexican writer, Francisco Rojas Gonzalez's novel, Historia de un Frac, Story of a Tailcoat. And it follows the black formal tailcoat cursed by the cutter as it goes from owner to owner in five otherwise unconnected stories. Now, this is a, a great concept for a film, and it gives a lot of different actors a chance to have a little bit of a go and while not being in a full on you know feature film with them from start to finish it gives you these little vignettes and these little stories and little almost morality plays in some ways which show us how the coat goes from um paul ormond and the great pomp and circumstance under which he gets the coat from the tailor to its eventual um, end location on a scarecrow in a poor black community, which is kind of cool. I love the concept of this, and it's got a fantastic cast. I'll just read you the cards, the cast list as I have it here, and then I'll talk about each of the episodes individually. We've got Charles Boyer, Rita Hayworth, Ginger Rogers, Henry Fonda, Charles Lawton, Edward G. Robinson, Paul Robeson, Ethel Waters, Eddie Rochester Anderson, Thomas Mitchell, Eugene Pallett, Cesar Romero, Gail Patrick, Roland Young, Elsa Lanchester, George Sanders, and J. Carol Nash. So there's an incredible cast here, and, and there are other minor players in there as well, but I won't go through all of those. So there are six parts to the story. Uh, the sixth one, which had W.C. Fields, Phil Silvers, and Margaret Dumont, was originally cut from the movie for... Um, it was, the movie went a little bit long, so they cut it. Um, it's not a bad little piece, but it, it does seem kind of out of tune with the rest of the movie. It was re-put into the movie because they found it in the vaults at Fox Studios in the mid-1990s. And the DVD copy that I've got has that sixth episode in it. Now, I won't 
do too many spoilers on the episodes, but I will talk about them individually. Uh, it's one, the first of two of this sort of movie that Julian de Vivier did at Fox Studios. The second one was a movie called Flesh and Fantasy, which came out a year later in 1943. I'm trying to find a copy of that at the moment because I really would like to see it and compare and contrast. It does have uh, a number of the same actors in it, particularly Thomas Mitchell, Edward G. Robinson and Charles Boyer. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that one because when I did watch Tales of Manhattan, it surprised me at the quality of it and that... um, there's a humane, there's a humanitarian kind of approach to it, which seems to be contrary to what we think we know about movies of this time. A lot of the actors were, well, some of them were um, well-known Hollywood lefties, and some of them were uh, black band when the House and American Activities Committee came through as well. On the other hand, it, it does have um, an actor or two who were very much on the other end of the spectrum politically. But uh, the first story that comes up um, is the one with Charles, Boy- Charles Boyer, Thomas Mitchell, and Rita Hayworth in it. Charles Boyer plays a famous actor who is having an affair with uh, Rita Hayworth's character, who is the wife of Thomas Mitchell's character. Now, this is a, a short piece, but it sets things up nicely. Uh, the ending has a, a couple of little twists and turns in it, which are kind of cool. I'm not going to do a spoiler except to say a couple of things. First off, Boye is very good in it. Rita Hayworth, of course, beautiful woman, and she's nice in it. But the standout performer in this one is Thomas Mitchell as the not very attractive and jealous husband. And there's a great scene between him and Charles Boye in his, well, what we would now call a man cave which does some really nice work on it. And uh, there are so many undercurrents in this one too. Uh, Charles Boyer and Rita Hayworth lie to each other to try to protect each other's feelings and to protect each other in other ways. Charles Boyer lies to Thomas Mitchell. Thomas Mitchell lies to Charles Boyer. The triangle is one of the most intense and labyrinthine that you're going to see in a film. And it's in the first sixth of this film and i liked it a lot it set me up nicely for the rest of them some are stronger than others but the charles boyer rita hayworth thomas mitchell one is great thomas mitchell i remember was in another movie where he played a a very morally dubious character he he did it in a number of films of course but i really liked him in uh, a film which i've spoken about again i've spoken about before on paleo cinema podcast and that of course is secret of the incas with charlton heston thomas mitchell's one of those guys that reminds me why i love character actors and in films because he's acting in both tales of manhattan and in secret of the incas is great he had a, an enormous talent for that moral ambiguity um i just remember too he was also in lost horizon uh the frank capra version in 1937 he was very good in that as well playing an embezzler who ends up in Shangri-La. A Thomas Mitchell Film Festival would not be a bad bunch of movies to watch because um, he really was one of those actors, actors kind of people. Uh, let me have a look here. He got the Triple Crown of Acting Awards in 1953. He got Best Supporting Actor um, on Stagecoach in 1939. In 1952, he got the Best Actor Emmy and the following year, he got a Tony Award for Best Performance by an Actor in the Musical Hazel Flag. So he's won an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award. And based on the acting that I've seen from Thomas Mitchell, 
he's got the skills to earn it, and uh, that's kind of a nice little side issue. But that first one's kind of very upper class. We do get to see a character who features a little more strongly in the second episode, and that is uh, Charles Boyer's character's butler, played by an actor called Eugene Pallet, who was, as I mentioned previously, in The Mark of Zorro and also Adventures of Robin Hood, where he played Friar Tuck. Eugene Pallet was a right-wing, um, anti-Semitic, nasty person in real life, but he, he played kind of portly and jovial character roles. And in this one, he plays Luther, the butler, basically, or the, or the you know, manservant of Paul Orman, the character played by Charles Boyer, who then lends the coat to a friend of his, a guy called Edgar, played by Roland Young, who is the manservant to a character in the second story that we get here, a guy called Harry Wilson, played by Cesar Romero. Harry's a shit, and he's in the shit as well. His fiance, they're just about to be married, played by Ginger Rogers, finds a very hot and passionate love letter in his tailcoat after he's had a night on the town with his friends. Now, Eugene Pallet's character is a friend of Roland Young's character. They're both manservants. And Roland Young goes to Eugene Pallet and says, can I borrow your boss's top coat? Because I've got a little bit of a situation here and I want to kind of substitute it. So Eugene Pallet brings across the top, the top coat. And between them, Harry and, um, and Edgar concoct this story that the coat with the love letter in it actually belongs to one of Harry's friends, a guy called George, played by Henry Fonda. Uh, Ginger Rogers' character has read this very hot and passionate love note and, as the story progresses, becomes increasingly interested in George because of the passionate things, and one assumes sexual things, said in this letter. And George, who's a kind of shy and, and withdrawn kind of character, a little bit like Henry Fonda was in The Lady Eve at the start of the thing, the movie with Barbara Stanwyck, and slowly realises that she wants to fall, she falls in love, basically, with um, George and dumps Harry, which is kind of ironic given the fact that Harry was going out with another woman at the time so there's a nice comedy bit there it's fairly short and plays kind of lightly it's a light touch and uh Cesar Romero who we know mostly these days is playing the Joker in the 1966 Batman TV series uh was a romantic leader at the time even though he was a gentleman who preferred gentlemen and he's he's got a good touch with the comedy as well. I never really liked Ginger Rogers as an actor. Yeah, dancer, fair enough. She was fantastic as a dancer. But as an actor, there wasn't a warmth to her that um, I kind of, you know, in the roles that I've seen her in. There's, there's a kind of, yeah, she seems a bit cold as a, as a character. I'm not talking about being sexy or not sexy. I'm just talking about her, maybe her acting abilities, who knows. But... Never really liked it much. Now the third tale is a poignant one, and one of the best in the one of the two best in the six stories that we have here. And the, uh, the coat gets sold off, and in the third tale we've got Charles Lawton playing Charles Smith, who's very poor, but he's a brilliant musician, composer, and conductor, who gets a big chance at fame and recognition. Um, he 
gets the cope because he's given an opportunity through a friend of his as a musician in a very large orchestra who presents who gives him an opportunity to talk to his boss who's a very big composer and conductor in a very large orchestra in New York and he hears Charles play his music and decides to give him an opportunity to play one of his pieces as a part of a much larger um, recital that the conductor is doing. Conductor's played by an actor called Vinka Frank, Victor Franken. Now, um, Charles's wife is played by his real-life wife, Elsa Lanchester, and so they've got to try to find him um, a tailcoat because conductors need tailcoats to wear. So they um, get the tailcoat from a second-hand dealer who's bought the coat from... Um, the, the previous owners, and as he's conducting, the tailcoat rips at the shoulders because it's much too small for him. And as he's conducting, and waving his arms around, the audience starts laughing and mocking him, even though the music is fantastic and they're not listening to the music, they're just looking at this slightly grotesque-looking man whose coat keeps getting progressively torn as he waves his arms around conducting. Now, the, this piece has a beautiful upshot, but the real fantastic bits are Charles Lawton's acting because he's he mugs it a little bit. Charles Lawton always played things a bit large because predominantly he was a stage actor for much of his career. But his Charles Smith, he, he creates a whole character really nicely and takes him from um, kind of annoyance as he's kind of playing piano in a bar to make a living to um, the opportunity he's given and, and the joy of that and the mockery that people um, apply to him when he gets his big break is shattering and his kind of tragic realisation that what people are doing is laughing at him rather than listening to his music. There's a beautiful arc there and Lawton's acting is first rate and it really has a moment of tragedy followed by a moment of triumph. And in such a short story, the arc is amazing. Um, I, I love this piece. It's, uh, it's, show, it's some of the best acting and um, a good short story turned to film in a sense. And there are a whole bunch of different writers in this movie. I should mention it before I go further. Ben Hecht wrote on this one. Uh, let's see, David Ogden, Ogden Stewart. Even Buster Keaton wrote a bit of it. So a whole bunch of different people wrote these things. And the stories hold together really, really well. The fourth story um, also has a tragic aspect of it and uh, an epiphany at the end of it. In the fourth story, Edward G. Robinson is, plays an alcoholic former lawyer living in a box. He's represented a whole bunch of crime figures in Chicago during the um, Prohibition era. He's been disbarred, and but almost by accident, he gets a chance to attend his 25th anniversary college reunion. So all of the people who um, live in the mission where he gets food and drink and, and everything he needs to keep the world together but, uh, get the tailcoat and basically do everything they can to make him appear to be a man of wealth as he has the 25th anniversary college reunion of all the wealthy lawyers he went to school with. And there's 
really um, there's one of his classmates is played by George Sanders as well. So we get Robinson who plays the man at, at his lowest depths and when he's pretending to be wealthier than he is and, and he, he's playing up to these wealthy and, and very influential men with whom he went to school. And they finally find out that um, he's not as wealthy as he seems. And there's a, a couple of little bits there which really do show Robinson's acting, which is on par with Lawton's in the previous piece. There are some thematic similarities between the two, but they're played very differently. And again, it, it shows the wonderfulness of someone given an opportunity and how people can um, redeem themselves. I'm, I'm a sucker for redemption stories in movies. And this one has two. And I kind of like that. So that one um, really is a powerful piece of drama and it works really well. And it shows that mistakes can make people drop from the highest heights to the depths in society if there's no social safety net, which of course America for the last couple of hundred years has rejected as a possibility so i really like that one the next one sequentially is the one with wc fields uh margaret dumont and phil silvers phil silvers is one of the um guys who sells the jacket to wc fields characters and he's a con man basically and he goes and uh gets the jacket and is giving a lecture on abstinence from alcohol at the home of a wealthy woman played by Margaret Dumont, where they're serving coconut milk as an alternative to alcohol. Now, the husband of um, Margaret Dumont's character spikes this enormous urn full of coconut milk with a ton of alcohol. And the joke of the piece is, as um, W.C. Fields' character is lecturing about abstinence in order to con this rich woman out of some money or everybody in the place including himself get drunker and drunker it's a little comedy skit it plays very broadly fields gets some nice bits of business margaret Dumont gets some bits of business and phil silvers in a very early role does but it does seem a little at odds with the rest of the movie nonetheless it's um it's a kind of nice comedy short and doesn't outstay its welcome. It's, it's fairly brief. Now, the last one is a little bit controversial from a modern viewpoint. Uh, it starts out really interestingly. A thief and robber played by J. Carol Nash needs steals a coat from a second-hand shop to commit a robbery at a gambling party for rich men. The gambling party is not legal, really. And so he has to pretend to be a wealthy man gets in there, robs the people and of $43,000, which is a hell of a lot of money at the time, and puts the money into the pockets of the jacket and escapes by plane. Now, his friend's got a two-seater plane. Unfortunately, um, the jacket accidentally catches fire in the plane and the thief throws it out with the money still in the pocket because the jacket's on fire. He's wearing the jacket in an open cockpit aeroplane. He throws it out. And it's the day before Christmas. The jacket's found by a poor black couple, Luke and Esther, played by Paul Robeson and Ethel Waters, who find the jacket, put out the fire, and take the money. They've got $43,000. They're incredibly poor rural people living in a small 
black shanty community. So they take the money to their minister, played by Eddie Rochester Anderson, who was a foil for Jack Benny for so many years. And they decide to give the money to the congregation to buy the things they've prayed for over the last year. So there's enough money there to basically enrich this entire community and give them what they want. Some people need a tractor so they can uh, plough their land more efficiently and get some more money doing that. Some people want a bit more land so they can be more productive. Some The kids just want something small. And finally they get to an old farmer who isn't a man of religion the way that the rest of the community is and doesn't really pray. He's not a... He's, basically an atheist. And he said the only thing he really needs in his life is a scarecrow because the crows and, and the birds are eating his crops. So they take this worn-out, shredded, burnt jacket and make a scarecrow out of it, and the movie ends. So that's kind of cool. Now, the reason that the last bit is controversial is there's a little bit of racial stereotyping in the way the black community, the poor black community, is portrayed. There's a little bit of D's and D's kind of accents there but it's you can go one way or the other and now there are there are people who agree one way and there are people who agree another way in one sense it's got Paul Robeson in it who was a um, social justice warrior before the name appeared in the most positive sense of it and like Robeson the screenwriter David Ogden, Ogden Stewart was a member of the Communist Party and this whole story and this whole piece is about sharing the wealth in order to enrich everyone. They suddenly get all this money and it's given to the community on a needs basis and the community thrives and becomes happy. So on one side, you've got an enormous critique of trickle-down economics. And on the other, there's a little bit of cliched rural, poor, black community kind of things. And uh, one of the critiques made of the movie at the time was that it made the black people appear childlike and innocent. And in the and there's a kind of Paul Robeson sings a song and it's all like the old Negro spirituals about singing their way to glory and all that kind of thing. But Robeson saw it differently and he said it was a matter of human dignity and that outweighed what he considered to be the negative sides of the movie. It also showed that the way um, black people were living under sh sharecropping was, wasn't going to make them profit wealthy. It isn't, wasn't even going to give them a, a decent living. So on one side, it's, um, there's a negative stereotype of black people. On the other side, it shows how giving people the resources they need in order to work hard and thrive is what's necessary to kickstart a community and to give them uh, a not a comfortable life, but a fulfilled life. So there are two sides to that. And um, this was the last piece of acting that Paul Robeson did in Hollywood because of that ambiguity about it and because of the stereotyping of his people. But it does shows something interesting which is the only people who really there are two lots of people in this film who live in a commu supportive community and that is the poor people around edward g robinson's character in the, his piece of it and the poor black people in the rural community there the rest of them are kind of out for themselves to greater or lesser degrees about the people who care about other people and who care about 
the future and they care about all of those around them in their communities are the poor and the black people in this film, which is one of the reasons why the movie isn't very popular. Now, the stereotyping um, of the black people, of course, is problematic, and I'm not going to excuse that, but it's a movie of its time, though it was um, noted at the time that it did have that flaw. But nonetheless, it does have some positive parts to it as well. And overall, from going from the first to the last and having this story, these stories be told as the history of a tailcoat and showing it travelling through different communities that becomes older and rattier and, and not the glorious garment that it was at the start of the film. Glorious but cursed garment. It's kind of interesting. And uh, even though, and with all of those... Um, qualms about the film i think it's really fun and interesting to watch it and again it's a part of film history and the fact that they even tried to portray black people as human beings even though they were in some ways portrayed as childlike and innocent i think gives them some brownie points more than a lot a movie like song of the south where people were seen as being happy being slaves it's definitely at a different level than that film. But again, I'm a white guy talking best part three quarters of a century later about this film. It's not my story, it's not my community, but I can see the positive and the negative aspects of it. But I really enjoyed that film. It cost me five bucks to get this on DVD, and I got much, much more than my money's worth with it. Anyway, that's about it for Tales of Manhattan. So when I get back... Going to be talking about a totally different film from a totally different era, the 1970 black comedy Entertaining Mr. Sloan, starring Harry Andrews, Beryl Reed, and Peter McGannery. Kath was the first to realise Mr. Sloan's potential. What a smooth skin you have on you. Hey? Entertain Mr. Sloan. Go on, give him the benefit of your experience. But Dada wasn't at all keen on entertaining Mr. Sloan. You? Who told you to take in lodgers? Well, I needed a bit extra. You know what they say about landladies. And then Brother Ed saw the life. Well, it must have been a rotten life for a kid. Being an orphan. Don't take any money from him. I'll pay. It's going to work for me. Can I buy him a shirt? Buy his own clothes, making yourself look ridiculous. Entertaining Mr. Sloan became a fiercely competitive struggle. Quite eminent about the waist, as I expect you've noticed. Women are like banks, boy. Breaking and entering is a serious business. I wonder, Mr. Sloan, if you'd take your trousers off. With me behind you, boy. You'll go out of it. <laughs> Mr. Sloan had his own ideas of entertainment. Entertaining Mr. Sloan. Starring Beryl Reed, Harry Andrews, Alan Webb, Peter McHenry as Mr. Sloan. I'm going to the police. You bring this on yourself, you know. So this was also a part of Mr. Sloan's entertainment. Everybody wanted to entertain Mr. Sloan. And Mr. Sloan is waiting to entertain you. Entertaining Mr. Sloan is a 1970 British black comedy 
directed by Douglas Hickox. It's based on a 1964 play of the same title by Joe Orton. Now, that name may ring a bell with cinephiles because if you remember a movie called Prick Up Your Ears, which had Alfred Molina and Gary Oldman in it, it was based on the life of Joe Orton. It didn't end well, neither the movie nor the life of Mr. Orton. He was killed by his partner, Kenneth Hallowell, after they had an argument and a disagreement in 1967. Um, Orton did a number of plays. Uh, a couple of others have been adapted as well. Loot's one of them. I'm actually going to re-watch Loot uh, in the next few days. But entertaining Mr. Sloan seemed to be the right one to do for this particular podcast, given the fact that it does, at the end of the movie have a form of gay marriage in it and with Australia just legalising marriage equality it seemed like a good time to do it I first saw this movie when I was at a very impressionable age on late night television and I'm not sure what I thought about it I may have been a bit dismissive of it because of the gay themes I was in a very unenlightened stage as a teenager and this was before I knew any gay people and I had the usual working-class homophobia that was a inherent to the environment in which I was raised. Let's put it that way. I've since learned my lesson, and entertaining Mr. Sloan, revisiting that now is a lot of fun. Uh, the dark comedy of it is great, uh, and it's really... It doesn't have the transgressive nature it had in 1964, because you've got to remember, on the 29th of June, 1964, when the play came out, it was still illegal in the UK to be gay. And men were blackmailed. Uh, there was just a nightmare situation. People were jailed and lives were ruined by that illegality. In Australia, it lasted a lot longer. It lasted about a decade longer. But, um, yeah, at the time Joe Warden wrote this, it was a very transgressive play and um, very popular in the theatre. But nonetheless, it was um, considered a bit risque at the time. In fact, very risque. Now, the movie was made in 1970, which is a slightly more enlightened time than 1964. Uh, the cast, I'll tell you the plot and I'll tell you the cast probably. Um, Kath's a lonely middle-aged woman living in the London suburbs with her ageing father, Kemp, referred to as Dada or the Dada. When she meets an attractive Sloan sunbathing on a tombstone in a cemetery near her home, she invites him to become a lodger. Soon after he accepts her offer, Kath seduces him. Her closeted brother Ed makes him the sh- his chauffeur, complete with a tight leather uniform, of his pink 1959 Pontiac Parisian convertible. Kemp, recognising Sloan as the man who killed his boss years before, stabs him in the leg with a gardening tool. Sloan takes delight in playing the brother against the sister, Ed against Kath, and tormenting the elderly man. He gets Kath pregnant and a jealous Ed warns him to stay away from her. Then things get serious, and ultimately, in a very weird and wonderful way, Kath and Ed end up entertaining Mr. Sloan in um, a kind of design-for-living situation. Now, the cast is its a four-hander, basically. The cast is pretty simple. Beryl Reed plays Kath, Harry Andrews, who we know from all sorts of different movies, including The Hill, plays Ed. Alan Kemp plays 
uh, Alan Webb plays Kemp, the father of the Dada, and Peter McGenry plays Sloan. Now, having said that, Sloan in the movie is different than Sloan in the play. It isn't to say Peter McGenry does a bad job, but I saw a YouTube video of the original actor who played Sloan on the stage, an actor called Dudley Sutton, a really interesting character actor, who complained about the movie's portrayal of Sloan, and, and who better has a right to than the man who originally um, portrayed the role. He said that the difference in the movie from the play is that Sloan is lump and proletariat. He's thick, he's manipulative, he's nasty, and he's basically a sociopath. And that was played less in the movie than it was in the original play. Uh, Dudley Sutton went on to do any number of other things as well, mostly in character roles, but uh, I kind of always liked him as an actor. And if you go to YouTube, you can see Dudley Sutton talking about entertaining Mr. Sloan and doing a bit of a reading about, um, well, from the play, the bit that was cut from the play in the original um, stage version, but which is in the movie. And there's a beautiful kind of poetry to the horrible things Sloane says and the dialogue Joe Orton gives it. So there are a lot of themes in this movie. Uh, the, the theme of uh, Ed and Kath and their dynamic because Kath had a child by one of Ed's boyfriends many years before this play takes place. And Ed made her give the child up because he was jealous and angry with her. And so there's a slight hint that the guy saying his name is Sloan could be that child, though that's never confirmed one way or the other. And if it is the case, it, it means some kind of incredibly incestuous things going on. But nonetheless, um, Sloan's kind of, in, as played by Peter McGenery, is kind of young, slim, blonde, attractive to both Kath and to Ed. And plays them off against each other he's supposed to be Ed's chauffeur but Ed ends up doing all the work on the car and driving it because Sloane knows how to manipulate him stretching out with his shirt off and playing with his stomach muscles and his arm muscles while Ed's watching that kind of thing and sexually teasing him and he also knows how to get around Kath by playing up being the poor lost soul when she's around the only person that really sees him for who he is is the Dada, who's um, nearsighted and nobody pays any attention to because he's an old man. It sounds grimmer than it is. Uh, there's some very funny dialogue, and I play a little bit. Um, well, actually, I played a little bit in the trailer at the start. You've really got to see this one because um, it's a lot of fun, and it's in a sense it's of its time because homosexuality was seen as transgressive and naughty in 1964 and in fact Dudley Sutton said about Joe Orton that he might not have liked things the way they are now because it took away the naughtiness of being gay and he was very much into that and into that kind of transgressive transgressive approach to things him and his partner Kenneth Hallowell did things like they'd borrow library books and paste pictures on the covers to make them very different they, they pasted pictures of a mostly naked tattooed man on one book and changed pictures on another and got in trouble and in fact um, were fined and arrested for defacing library books by basically turning the covers of the library books into 
collages of art, those library books are now in museums and in art galleries as very collectible items, which goes to show how things come around. Now, as far as the actors are concerned, Beryl Region might remember from The Killing of Sister George, um, one of the first mainstream movies to cover lesbianism, where her and Susanna York play a couple. Um, and things, again, then don't end well. They end much better for Beryl Reed in Entertaining Mr Sloan than they do in um, The Killing of Sister George. Her cat's a very stagey character. In fact, the whole thing's very stagey and, and understandably given the source material. But she's um, kind of pathetic and sad, um, mutton dressed up as lamb a lot of the time, and you can tell that she's damaged by her past and uh, by her loneliness and she clings to whatever scraps of affection and sexual attention that Sloane chooses to give her, and Beryl replays that really nicely. And she's also got an enormous vanity about her, and um, you can tell that she's been bullied by Ed, her brother, since childhood. It's really a, a finely tuned role, and, and Beryl Reed does it very well. Then you've got Harry Andrews playing Ed. Now, Harry Andrews we know from a whole bunch of different movies where he played tough military officers for the most part. I mean, he was in the ruling class as the Earl of Gurney, for instance. Uh, let me just see so many other roles there for him. Battle of Britain he was in. Uh, a Dandy in Aspic with uh, Lawrence Harvey. Night of the Generals, The Deadly Affair. He played Gerald Tarrant in the... Um, adaptation of Modesty Blazer, Joseph Losey did. He was in Sands of the Kalahari, another fantastic film. As I said, he was in The Hill, 633, Squadron, 55 Days of Peking, all sorts of other things. In fact, he was in the army during World War II as um, a member of the Royal Artillery. However, Harry Fleetwood Andrews was also a closeted gay man for most of his life because he had to be it was illegal to be gay he did have a long-term partner a guy called uh basil hoskins another actor and they worked together on a number of films and he you know they, they were a very devoted couple right up until um the death of harry andrews in fact uh basil hoskins himself died in 2005 so he he did have a relationship but again because of the times in which he lived unfortunately he wasn't able to live openly as the person he was, which is, again, one of those tragedies of history that hopefully we're stepping away from these days. But Harry Andrews, oh, I always like in, in films, um, had a great look about him, big kind of craggy face, didn't look like what people in his time thought of as a stereotypical gay man um, because of his size and muscular nature and, and the strength of his features and, and the very, very much the military macho um, attitude that he um, conveyed in a number of things. But, of course, he did entertaining Mr. Sloan, where he does play a gay, closeted leather fetishist. So he, he's kind of stayed true to himself as well as staying in the closet up to a certain point. Alan Kemp, Alan Webb, sorry, I keep saying Alan Kemp, but it's Alan Webb playing Kemp. The Dada is was an actor who, who did a lot of character roles in his time, mostly looking a lot less scruffy and a lot less um, pathetic than he did when he was in Entertaining Mr Sloan. Uh, he died in 1982, 
but he was no he did a number of movies he was in king rat he was in he played swallow in chimes at midnight with awesome wells for instance he was in the canterbury tales the first great train robbery with sean connery he was in that as well west of zanzibar uh the third secret which is a movie i really should do on a future podcast he was in the 1967 tamir the shrew with playing Grimio with elizabeth taylor and richard burton so yeah number number of film roles as well as being a very well regarded stage actor then we come to peter McHenry, who played sloan in this one uh peter McHenry got his main early fame um in a disney movie in fact uh he actually did a couple of disney movies he was in the moon spinners and the fighting prince of donegal uh, in 64 and 66, which were kind of action-adventure movies that um, Disney did. Uh, he did Moon Spinners with Hayley Wells and Elo Wallach, so that, that one I may not visit because I don't like those live-action Disney movies. And The Fighting Prince of Donegal with Susan Hampshire and Tom Adams, amongst other things. They were just basically programmers that uh, Walt Disney's Buena Vista company did in those days to kind of fill things out and then have something they could put into a two-part episode of Walt Disney's TV show a year or two later. But uh, in Sloan, he is kind of... He's good. I mean, they, but the character that he's asked to play is somewhat different than the Sloan we have from the play, who's a lot harder-edged than the Sloan that um, Peter McHenry presents us with. Nonetheless... He's, he is good in the role. Now, I've, I've actually done a bit of research about entertaining Mr. Sloan, and I found that the perfect actor to play the character of Sloan did play the, char- did play the character in 1975. In fact, it was on my birthday, the 17th of April, 1975. Um, there was a Joe Orton festival at the Royal Court Theatre in London with Beryl Reed playing Kath again. And Malcolm McDowell played Sloan. Now, if you want to get a handle on the Sloan character, as he should have been, think young Malcolm McDowell. In fact, he did that uh, for a time with Ronald Fraser playing Ed. And then Ari H. Corbett took over from Ronald Fraser playing Ed. Um, it went. It ran for about six months. And seeing Malcolm McDowell as Sloan and entertaining Mr. Sloan must have been something to behold. But the movie ends basically with an agreement between Kath and Ed to share Mr. Sloan because they've got enormous amounts of blackmail material over him. And both of them go through a self-imposed wedding ceremony with Sloan, uh, which is for 1970. And earlier still, for 1964, it was crazy transgressive. But even in 1970, tongue-in-cheek, it was still um, quite a confronting thing to see a brother and sister sharing a lover and sharing an agreement, a desire for living kind of agreement to um, share the same man. And <laughs> there's a beautiful expression on Peter McHenry's face that they freeze frame on right at the end of the movie, which is kind of cool. And um, again, it's not exactly the character as played in the original play, and Joe Wharton probably wouldn't have liked that that particular Sloan. But again, they were trying to hit a bigger audience by making it a theatrical feature, and for some reason, they, they made the choices they made regarding the character of Sloan. Uh, that happens a lot with 
uh, movie adaptations of plays, certain characters are often softened to make them a little more palatable sorry, to broader audiences. But I really enjoyed uh, revisiting Entertaining Mr. Sloan. It, the humour is still there. The um, outrageousness is still there. The subtexts of murder and nymphomania and homosexuality and all those kind of things that were once transgressive but are now, in a couple of cases, very much... Um, now, nobody believes in nymphomania anymore. Murders are still taboo, and being gay is something that our parliament just spent a whole week celebrating. So it's very much a different um, place than the England in which Joe Orton grew up. And unfortunately, I just did a bit more research. I spent six months in jail for defacing library books um, with all sorts of um, pictures uh, amazing, yeah, for defacing library books, you do six months in jail in those days, and they complain about minimum sentencing now. It's a weird thing. It was a, another world in that part of um, the 20th century. And, of course, because he was working class, that would have worked against him as well. But uh, entertaining Mr. Sloan, um, you can probably find a copy of it around if you look, and I, I recommend that you do. Just let me check the Bay of Ease and see whether they've got it. Let me have a look. He said, typing in the way, yeah, it's on Blu-ray. So why the fuck wouldn't you get it? There's just a new English Blu-ray of it out. You can get it on DVD. I can, here in Australia, I can get it on DVD for 17 bucks, and, and I may well just do that. But the English have just put it out on DVD. So it's worth picking up a copy of, uh, particularly if you're a fan of Orton's work, and I'm increasingly becoming a fan of Joe Wharton's work uh, over the last couple of years. In fact, I should get the biography of him that John La did and also some of his diaries because his diaries, from what I hear, are crazily outrageous. But uh, it, was, it was fun revisiting that movie. In fact, both of these movies were fun. One was a surprise. The Tales of Manhattan was a big surprise to me. And Entertaining Mr. Sloan was a bit of fun from a time that I first saw at a time when I was a lot less enlightened than I am, and I'm, I'm by no means enlightened by most people's criteria these days, but in those days I was a lot less enlightened. Um, and it was good to revisit it at a time where I, I know more about the subject matter. I can see the nuances in it, and I can appreciate the, the fun of the play uh, in a totally different way that I could in those days. So, yeah, I mean, th this podcast was en enjoyable at a lot of levels. And the move, what I've got to remember is to find those movies and to really just embrace the fun of films that are very often and sadly forgotten. So, anyway, that's about it for this time around. As usual, the wonderful Patreon supporters, and I'm saying that because I want to keep them and also because they're wonderful, uh, we'll get a nice um, mention at the end of the podcast. Sorry if I'm sounding vague, but I just found a Blu-ray copy of Entertaining Mr. Sloan at a reasonable price, and I'm just about to buy it on eBay. So I really should wait until after I finish recording this fucking thing before I do that. Nonetheless, um, thank you for listening. Thank you again to the Patreon supporters. If you have any questions about the changes to Patreon, please email me at feedback 
paleo at gmail.com or send me a message on Facebook. I want to give you guys as much information as you can get if for some reason you're having some problems or some qualms about these changes because it's a profound um, shock to a number of podcasters and other content creators that I know that all this shit's happening. But we'll get through it one way or the other. If worse comes to worse and everything goes tits up, then Podbean, my hosting um, provider, does have a means by which um, people can subscribe monetarily to the podcasts. And if things get worse with um, Patreon, I may need to look at moving things over to there. But at this stage, that's not happening. I'm just kind of doing what I can to increase the amount of content I give to the people who pay money. And later on, I'll pass that content on to the people who get things for free. It's sucky that I've got to do that, but I want to make sure that I look after the people who have been supporting and financing this podcast for a couple of years now the best way I can under the circumstances. So anyway, keep watching movies. Watch bad movies, watch good movies, watch any kind of movies you like. Um, I'm even telling people that I hope that uh, The Last Jedi doesn't disappoint them because I'm becoming mellow in my dotage. Uh, Look after yourselves. I'll be back very soon. And here, of course, are the credits for the Patreon supporters. Take care, and I'll catch you guys later. And here are the credits. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher, the gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our setting unit director, Paul, our special effects makeup, special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our monster effects guy, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, the set photographer, Mark D, extra, David L, the extra, Richard C, our transportation co-captain, Carrie L, our Tasmanian consultant, and Kerry C, our accountant. We also have Sally, our continuity girl, and of course the other Sally who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. Yeah.
And we stream entertaining Mr. Snow. For certain, dirt on his white curtain, little hands. One understands him, yes, he's an orphan lad. Bad he's not, and he's got a chance. Ah, but what's the chance he fancies me? We'll see. Entertaining Mr. Sloan 